The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines this Tuesday morning. UBS posts its best third quarter pre-tax profit in a decade. But the Swiss bank does warn that political uncertainties may lead to higher market volatility. We're going to hear from the outgoing CEO Sergio Amotti at 8 Central European time. U.S. markets closed firmly in the red. The Nasdaq seeing its fifth negative session in a row for the first time since August 2019. As investors eye stimulus talks amid today's Democratic-imposed deadline. A mute button. Just one of the changes in place ahead of the next and final presidential debate between the president and the Democratic challenger Joe Biden. Plus, SK Hynix buys Intel's memory chip business in an all-cash deal worth $9 billion, sending shares in the South Korean company lower. see you all this morning. You'll, you'll wonder where my great friend and colleague Jeffrey Cutmore is, and that's because he is prepping for an interview which is going to happen imminently, which we're going to play you at 8CT uh, with Sergio Amotti. So I'm actually very excited about that conversation. Um, you should be very excited about what's going on in these markets as well, because quite frankly, there is so much going on in these markets as well. But we're going to concentrate on the banking sector a little bit today uh, and indeed this morning because of those UBS numbers. And I'll just give you uh, a bit of background. UBS shares down 10.6% year to date as well, which is more robust than some, less than others as well. Uh, just looking at the basic parameters uh, of this stock, it at one point, when Sergio Motti had come in and done his big early revamp, uh, they were trading around about 16 times forward. I remember it very well. Uh, now trading a more modest 10 times forward as well. But in terms of the numbers, which already Reuters, it's quite harsh, calling the Amotti swan song. Why should you have a swan song? Uh, anyway, anyway there's a swan song uh, for uh, Sergio Motti as CEO, of course, before um, he uh, repla he's been replaced by a, a Dutch counterpart. But here we go. Uh, posts a 99% jump in third quarter profit on heavy turnover in global markets. And how many times have we heard that from the likes of JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs? Well, it's, I guess, nice hearing it from a European bank as well. Heavy turnover in global banks, helping the bank to a strong performance in investment banking, as well as, and it says here, an unexpected rise in earnings for wealth management. Let me give you some numbers. Net profit for the world's largest wealth manager climbed to $2.1 billion in the July to September period. Now, that's surpassed by a wide margin, so this is my Reuters copy, uh, the $1.6 billion, uh, which was a poll of 22 analysts. Um, what does Mr. Amotti say? He says, third quarter results continue to demonstrate our strategy in differentiating us as we continuously adapt and ex uh, accelerate uh, the pace of change. A nice set of numbers to leave uh, Ralph Harmers with, of course. Well, Har Ralph Harmers, a man we've spoken to many, many times on this channel. He is the current uh, boss, well, the former boss of ING, who will be taking over 
in November. So let me just give you some more numbers. I think you probably want more uh, stats. This is interesting as well. The CET1 ratio at the end of September, 13.5%. CET1 leverage ratio at 3.8% as well. Um, I have got, what else for you? Here we go. They've established $1.5 billion in third quarter uh, reserves for potential share repurchases in the beginning of 2021. Expects to be allowed to resume repurchasing shares uh, that year. Now, I think the whole repurchasing of shares thing has become a, a, a contentious issue, hasn't it, on both sides of the Atlantic. We've heard CEOs there wanting to be allowed to buy back their shares, uh, wanting uh, increased dividends as well, because they are, at the moment, making great profitability in various parts of the business. As I say, wealth management at UBS, a bright spot compared to what was expected, up 18% year on year in the third quarter. Invested assets up 27 up at 2.754 trillion US dollars as well. Let's have a bit of pandemic commentary as well. Going forward, pandemic and political uncertainties may lead to periods of higher market volatility and could affect client activity. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is this is this is it, isn't it? And I'm sure Jeff will, will, will try and drill down on this one as well. You know, like I say, if you get a price in pre-market and you're like one bid at ten or something, you know, you think you can drive a truck through it. Well, I think dare I say it, you could drive a truck through this comment. Going forward, pandemic and political uncertainties may lead to periods of higher market volatility. Wait for it. This is the point that could affect client activity positively. Or negatively. Yes, exactly. The director knew what was coming there as well. So, well, thank you for that, UBS. You've really helped us hone in on the key point there as well. But I appreciate you're your, your working in the same environment we are as well. Uh, actions driving net interest income should offset US dollar interest rate headwinds, of course. And we've talked a lot about the yield curve as well. Right. Uh, as I say, Jeffrey's just sitting back, having a coffee, working out which points of attack he's going to make for Sergio. Oh, oh well, the most interesting debate, I guess. Anyway, um, that interview, when Jeff finally makes it back on set, will be at 8 CET. Right. Uh, let's move on. Let's move on and get talk to our first guest straight away. Uh, plenty going on in these markets. And I mentioned about fixed income as well there. So Tom, good morning to you. Tom Kinnamonth, who is uh, Senior Fixed Income Strategist at ABN Amro. Very nice to speak to you, Tom. I, I haven't really looked at the markets too much uh, since I've looked at the UBS numbers as well. But one thing I do know is that people are beginning to think, hang on a second, are we going to get uh, a steepening of the yield curve? Is there something happening here where actually growth is well better than many people expected? We're hoping for a vaccine. And as such, it makes a very interesting income environment. Good morning, Tom. Hey, good morning. Pleasure. So in, in terms of what you're expecting out of these fixed income markets going forward as well, are we going to remain with very low yields or do you expect them to start picking up somewhat? I think low, low for longer is here for a long, long time now. Um, we've already had the Fed announce that they're going to be very low for a long time. Europe will be forced then to follow suit. And um, yeah, I suppose what we see from the bank side is that growth has been quite weak. Provisions have been three to four times higher than they were last year. But the key, key difference this time is because provisions have been able to be distributed over a longer time period, that capital positions, as you said there on UBS, have actually improved. Solvency has improved because capital requirements have gone down. And so banks really are in a totally different world this time compared to 2008. Uh, and in terms of, of the, 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 the desire to buy back shares, do you think that's the, the right thing for these banks to be asking for at the moment or should they be building up their capital more given the uncertainty uh, that Sergio Motti was talking about? Um, well, with moratoriums this year, a lot of provisions are pushed to next year. So there will be a lot of banks that will be 
provisioning a lot more than anticipated next year. Our anticipations are, say, three to four times again next year, almost this year's again next year. So paying back dividends very quickly is very contentious because everyone knows there's not an end to a pandemic in sight yet, and there's still a lot of provisions to come. So maybe they want a little bit more visibility on that side. However, on the other side, banks which do have very good retail lending, if you're involved in the mortgage markets, for example, they've been really strong and robust, the housing markets. Those banks are having lots of excess capital, have lots of room to continue to, to buy back. And so possibly what we could see is somewhere where instead of a blanket rule about dividend buybacks, um, we could see more of a rule that says, okay, well, actually, if your CT1 position is 6% above requirements, which some banks are, you will be able to distribute some of your equity back, which would then hopefully help those companies overall. Why do European banks trade at such a significant discount to book value as well? I, I, it's suspiciously, the market and, dare I say, it, some sceptical journalists such as myself think it's because the value of their assets just ain't what it should be uh, and they haven't marked the down the value properly. Or is the market just completely wrong? I find that hard to believe. Um, well, essentially, although the fixed income story is rather positive on solvency, profitability is very, very tough. You've got an incredibly competitive market. You've got loan growth looking like it's not going to pick up over the next few years. In combination, as we discussed there, you've got very low flat curves for a long period. And so the next three to four years outlook, suddenly you've got a lot of provisions to come. You don't have steep curves to do your maturity transformation. And it just makes it very tough then with all the competition because of the overbanked sector compared to potentially the US then it just makes that outlook of profitability look weak. And in the end, if the ROE of the European banking sector is around 4 to 5%, then the current price to book value of, say, 0.4 is actually quite in line with kind of anticipations for the next few years. Sorry, I'm confused. What, the, the return on equity, you think, from the European banks is around about 4%. That, that's kind of like, a, what, a third or a quarter of what we're seeing out of the US? So hence, one would suggest then that despite what you were saying about the strength of individual banks, we deserve to trade at a significant discount to the US, Tom. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. While the European banking sector continues to stay so segmented, so fractured and so competitive, especially on corporate lending, you're going to see continued profitability issues. And that's why this year we've seen a huge splurge in M&A activity. Banks are aware that they've got to get together, they've got to do it quickly, and COVID has really accelerated it. We've seen it domestically now in Spain, uh, in Italy under discussions, sure in Germany we'll begin to see it. Only once that consolidation can begin, then the higher return on equities will begin to follow through, and then the price to books and improvement will begin to kind of match then towards the US peers. If their profitability stays at that 4 5% return on equity, what have you, which is obviously that, that key measure as well, then the 0.4 uh, the, the price to book, which is average maybe 0.5, that's a value trap if those ROEs stay where they are. Yeah, exactly. If essentially if the ROE is below 10%, it's it's value destruction for an equity investor now to come in. Uh, that's why 
European bank equities are down 40% year to date. Uh, although a lot of the, the discussion is talked about of how great equity markets have done, European bank equities have had an absolutely horrendous year. And until that profitability issue can be resolved, it's a very tough case for equity investors. They can see other places to invest at 10% ROE in other sectors. And that it's just not in favor at the moment. And because of this lower for longer outlook, more stimulus on the way, continued low rates, we continue to see that very tough environment for bank profitability. Very tangible now. So our viewers can actually get a grip on this. So I'm, I'm loving this conversation. So we, we go, if that ROE as the key measure for you, I'm presuming it is the key measure now, gets into double digits, then that is a green light for investors. Until we're there, as you say, value destruction, there are plenty of other places to keep your money as well. That, that is the key measure that you are looking at when you're valuing these banks, yeah. Exactly that. It's it's a broad rule of thumb that if, if you can get your ROE at 10% for a number of years, your price to book is then going to go up and match that. Obviously, you... The European banks have suffered this year for provisions. A couple of years ago, it was the huge investments in tech. Kind of the year before that was huge financial fines that negatively impact profitability. So people were still a little bit more hopeful every year. Now it's beginning to price in a little bit more negativity on provisions, outlook, um, the need for kind of bringing through that maturity steepness, which we don't think is going to come through. And, and that's essentially why bank equities are, are really under, under pressure. However, once you get this consolidation, because with the low price to book, you can book the, the bad will through positively, which we're beginning to see, then you can really begin, if you do get this consolidation through the cycle, to begin to see higher ROEs, and then you can begin to see the higher price to books and then the increase in equity prices. This is very enjoyable. I've got one more. I, I'm, I'm supposed to have gone two questions ago, but I want to ask you one more because I'm enjoying this. <laughs> so the housing market is key. So when you look, at, according to you, uh, if this can stay robust, then the banks are very well positioned in the crisis. So when you look at these figures from yesterday, from the NAHB, which are pretty much off the Richter scale record as well. And then the market falls aggressively, with I presume the financials having a, a, a torrid day yesterday as well. I haven't looked at the individuals in the state as well. Does that leave you scratching your head? Um, not overly. Um, in, in the end, over 50% of lending, for example, in Europe, is, is housing lending. It's it's not the, the sexy news that gets it, but it is very mortgage, very securitized, very a lot of collateral. Um, and as long as the second order effects next year un, under unemployment don't cause a significant increase in unemployment and a decrease in housing prices, like we saw in 2008, for example, then you can continue to earn as a bank, say 50% of your earnings still coming through steady, still going wrong, and they can begin to offset those provisions, which may be 1% of your total loan book, but over those periods. So essentially, the banks are being saved because a lot of their lending is very safe, securitized, and there's getting a huge support from low interest rate for the housing market. And the housing market has increased so much over the last five years that that housing market is almost like a secret cash cow that as long as that can keep robust, then banks should be able to weather this crisis over the next 24 months, say, pretty well. Very good job as a senior fixed income strategist of talking about equities as well. And I get so many FI guys who refuse to talk about equities. Well, what, what, why, <laughs> you've just upset them all because now they go, oh, no, he's going to ask us about equities. So anyway, Tom, th oh, by the way, one quick question. Do you know what an exurb is? I've never heard the term exurb. 
no, 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 I didn't. We, you and I will talk about suburbs until we're blue in the teeth. But I've now just seen this term, exurbs. I just wonder if you had either, because that's two of us who've been in the market for a long time. We haven't heard of it. Tom, <laughs> I'll explain if you can't listen to the show. Thank you very much indeed for that. Tom uh, Kimmon, <laughs> who is Senior Fixed Income Strategist at ABN AMRO. Exurb. Anyone in the gallery heard of exurb? No, none of us have. But apparently, this NAHB figure, which I just referenced, said that the confidence from the builders, came, which is at a record level, which I think quite extra extraordinary, was in the suburbs and exurbs. Yeah, sub and ex. Yeah, get it? Makes sense now, doesn't it? Suburbs and in exurbs out of... Uh, whatever. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will hold further stimulus talks later today after an almost one-hour-long phone call on Monday. A Pelosi spokesperson said both sides continue to narrow their differences ahead of a Democrat-imposed deadline that runs out today. House Democrats are seeking a fresh $2.2 trillion relief bill, whilst the White House has offered just under $1.9 trillion dollars. The White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, accused Mr. Pelosi of being a difficult negotiating partner. Obviously, there's more than just the White House that's negotiating. The 48-hour deadline uh, is, uh, is certainly welcomed by us. Uh, we, we thought that there should have been a 48-day uh, deadline uh, 48 days ago, and, and it's been really the speaker that continues to be very uh, uh, rigid in her negotiation. You know, it's her way or, or the highway. It's all or nothing. Don't you want, admire difficult negotiating partners? No? I, I don't want an easy negotiating part. I think I've had one over on them, wouldn't you? I know it's, anyway. Anyway, ask Barnier and Frost about that one. Uh, right, let, yeah. Uh, let's have a look at the markets. Uh, down 1.6. Why were we down 1.6%? Why have we fallen uh, on the NASDAQ for... Uh, well, I can show you the NASDAQ 100 as well. Why have we fallen uh, six out of six sessions, or five out of five sessions on the NASDAQ since the first time since uh, the middle of 2019 as well? Uh, first time we've fallen five out of five. We had four out of four on the upside before the five out of five on the downside. And has anything changed? Did you think that we were closer to a deal when you were buying it on the way up? I don't know. I think the juxtaposition, I love that word, juxtaposition uh, of that data I just mentioned with absolutely record level house builder sentiment juxtaposed with your concern about other things sent the market down. And why, for instance, are we seeing a heavier sell-off uh, on the technology stocks, you know, the structural change, the po uh, pandemic COVID um, secure stocks, the Teflon plated ones, ones, the ones that won't go down because they have structural defences. You know why? It's because they were the ones that got bought, aren't they? By, dare I say, uh, a group of investors who uh, didn't look at the fundamentals, whether they're cyclical or what have you. They just bought them on the momentum. Should we have a look at Treasuries as well? There is a feeling that actually if things do improve as well, that the Treasuries are going to pick up a little bit. And quite frankly, we're not seeing it. I mean, we are at the top end of a very tight range on the 10-year, 0.7673. I like the decimals there. Plenty of those. Uh, the five-year trading at 0.33. Uh, you get a mighty 1.557 for the 30-year. And it was interesting to listen to Tom, wasn't it, just now, about uh, the secret cash cow that is the housing market. Would you like to look at the U.S. futures? I think you would. Yeah, they're positive. There we go. 
Um, in fact, I'm going to walk. You can't even see this bit, but I'm going to walk into the camera because I'm an old man now. and My eyes are I have a little bit of problem with that. So 84 points up to the Nasdaq, the Dow up around about 69 points. I'm back now where I was, having just read that. Uh, very, very close. I was running against the camera like this, you see. Yeah. <laughs> OK, coming up on the show, apparently Jeff Cutmore is going to join me when he's conducted his interview with Sir Chair Motti. Plus, we're going to break down the $9 billion mega deal uh, in the chip maker space. Find out which business will become the second biggest player in global rankings. In fact, you already know if you listen to the original headlines. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. I get to air about, I don't know, 5.59 and a half, and I think, I haven't covered the stories. I don't know what I'm supposed to be covering. I don't know enough about the latest Brexit or the latest US politics or the latest in the markets or the latest deal-making. Uh, and then sometimes I'm, I'm soothed by the, the, the knowledge, but actually it doesn't matter about some of these big protestations. For instance, there's some great copy that came to me from a chap called Dave Allman at ElliotWave.com, just pointing out, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican historically. Look at the history. If you strip out... 1929 to 1932, which I challenge any uh, party, blue or red, to have uh, to have actually uh, bucked the trend on the market from an administration point of view. The fact of the matter is, uh, the market rallies between 7.8% uh, and 7.17% on an annual basis, no matter what the colour. So just just to calm some people down who are talking about blue wave, we go this way, red wave, we go this. Uh, split problems we have this, or contested election we have this. The fact of the matter is, it seems historically that the market goes up regardless. Anyway, let's have a look at the European markets. There you go. 35 points higher for the FTSE 100. The Zetradax seen 54 higher at the start of trade. Asian indices look like this. Uh, we're down across the board. The ASX 200 made a bit of ground to the upside yesterday, as did the Nikkei, both down. Uh, Shanghai Composite just compounding that 0.71% decline we saw yesterday, uh, despite the fact that you cannot get away from copy today, which is saying just how amazing the Chinese economy is doing. Now, there's a lot of nuances there. There's a lot of stimulus. There's a lot of difference in political regimes as well. But the fact of the matter is, if you take the data at its worth, they were extraordinarily good figures yesterday, despite the fact that apparently some people wanted 5.2% and we only got a paltry 4.9%. Show me a Western economy that wouldn't like figures like that. IBM shares have retreated 3% in extended trade after withholding guidance for the rest of the year, citing uncertainties over the pandemic. This is the tech giant reported a near 3% drop in revenue broadly in line with expectations. However, sales from its cloud business jumped 16%. Now, this offset weakness elsewhere. IBM warned that its customers are likely to prioritize cash preservation and operating expenses over new investments in the near term. It wasn't supposed to be like that, was it, ladies and gentlemen? I thought that we were going to have a tech splurge on investment because people were upgrading the system so they could cope with the COVID world. Okay. Uh, Logitech has posted a sharp rise in second quarter net profit. How can that be if people are not making new cash investment, but Logitech, which makes devices to do with computing, actually is seeing a sharp rise in second quarter profit? 
Interesting juxtaposition, a lovely word today, uh, and upped its full year guidance, that's Logitech, as the keyboard maker was boosted by an increase in at-home work due to the pandemic. Exactly what we were just talking about. The company also reported an uptick in demand with sales jumping 75%. So let me just say that again. You've got one company saying because of the pandemic, we're seeing sales jump 75%. You've got another company in the same space, well, tech space, okay, it's very broad, different products, saying actually people are holding their cash back, not making new investment because of the pandemic. Uh, Intel has agreed to sell uh, part of its memory chip business to the South Korean chipmaker SK Hynix for $9 billion. The deal would make SK Hynix the world's second largest manufacturer of so-called NAND chips, the most common type of flash memory used to store data in smartphones and servers. When you want some more detail, there's only one lady for the job. Sherry joins us with more. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Steve. Yes, I did sign up for this job. And of course, uh, this is an interesting industry that's, you know, seeing a lot of, um, you know, shaking up, I guess. And of course, uh, there was that recent AMD Xilinx uh, headline. And now we're seeing yet another example of this semi-industry, uh, you know, consolidation story, I guess. So Intel, this is not a surprise for, you know, people who are watching what Intel has been saying and doing or not doing enough of in recent years because the management has been saying that they're looking for something strategic in terms of boosting the shareholders' value, and this might be it. For SK Hynix, this is a semiconductor company in South Korea that has been betting, uh, well, although different in uh, you know degrees, I guess, perhaps, uh, depending on where we are in the semi-cycle, has been investing quite consistently when it comes to NAND flash memory business. So a $9 billion all cash deal and the payment terms are divided uh, majority of them next year and the remaining uh, two billion dollars in 2025 the structure of the deal is quite interesting because until the final closing year of 2025 it's not exactly a clean break but certainly an interesting semiconductor story this morning Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.